You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, we're back with another episode of Lanyap Podcast. Uh, Doug and Greg Stokes. We're joined by a guest this week. Rob Koifman, uh, who's the founder and co-founder and CEO of Koifin, uh, which is a financial technology company that's basically going to unseat Bloomberg from uh, from every uh, hedge fund and, and investment advisory firm's uh, technology stack. Rob uh, started his career at Goldman uh, in 2002 and later transitioned to proprietary trading at, at Goldman in London. Following that, worked as uh, head of macro and thematic trading at Citigroup and worked as a strategist at Caxton, uh, Lixor Asset Management, and, and Techni Capital. Um, and then, Rob, you started Coifin in 2016 and uh, and then been have been going strong ever since. Is that right? That's right. Wow. What a forecast of that unseating Bloomberg. I appreciate that. Yeah. Wow. We're That's gonna, a prophecy. Well, yeah, uh, well, after this episode, the, your trajectory <laughs> is going to be on uh, <laughs> the up and up. Um, so, Rob, I want to talk about Coifin in a, in a minute. Uh, but before we get there, uh, just reading your background, it's a lot of focus on, um, you know, the hedge fund world uh, on the Goldman and Citigroup side. And then uh, and then also just the macro hedge fund at Caxton specifically. And I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on macro has been in the news a lot in the last, uh, what, 18 months or so, specifically with actions, uh, Federal Reserve, uh, raising interest rates, strong dollar, geopolitical crises all over the place. Um, as you think about it, the, about this from the perspective of a macro trader and somebody that was actually, uh, you know, their, their job was to make money off of uh, macro moves, how are you looking at today's marketplace? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on this podcast. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, I think uh, before I started Coifin uh, in 2016, I was on Wall Street for about 15 years and really got a chance to work on the sell side and on the buy side and a lot of different groups, including single stocks and, and options and macro. Um, and if there's one thing I learned, it's that nobody knows what the hell's going to happen. And um, people are just people, um, even though they may say things with confidence. Um, and so when I joined a macro fund called Caxton, I thought they would be really good at uh, predicting what's going to happen in macro. And that's not even remotely close to what goes on in macro funds and that they have a view or they have some scenarios of what might happen. And they're very good at trading uh, what actually happens. They're not not really good at predicting the future because the future is just so complicated and depends on so many different factors. Um, it's not to say that they don't have a forecast or they don't have a central forecast, um, but but typically um, uh, macro funds or successful macro funds or investors just, uh, one, uh, don't know what's going to happen and to acknowledge that they don't know what's going to happen and really um, every day and every week try to, try to question and try and uh, recenter and refocus their view on, on what's happening and, and what's going on. Um, in terms of my view and, and how I think about the market, um, I tend to be just bullish overall or, or optimistic overall. Um, and that's because if you look at the past 200 years or 1,000 years or whatever it is, the, the trend is, is, is that 
the world grows and, and the, the economy grows and populations grow, or, or the economy grows driven by population and driven by productivity. Um, and even though you have periods, um, uh, short periods, one year, two year, five year, 10 year, where things don't grow or maybe not grow as fast, um, eventually there's, there's a trend in the market or in the economy for growth. Um, and so whenever I think about something, my central case is always to just assume it will continue to grow. And, and we could talk about kind of the, uh, the extremes of that. Maybe something has been growing too fast and reverts, which is, I think, what was happening over the past uh, 12 months, um, or something was, uh, where the economy was growing very slow and then reverts uh, uh, to the upside, which is kind of what happened during, during COVID. Um, but in general, I think kind of having this really long-term view of, of where, uh, what growth is in terms of run rate growth. Um, and not getting too bulled up or too bared up when we have these small mini cycles. That's, that's where, that's how I approach the world. Um, and then think about tactically, um, what looks attractive or, or, uh, what presents the best risk reward on a six to 12 month basis in, in that sort of time frame. Um, so to be a little bit more specific, um, I think right now we're, uh, at a point where we've had a, a pretty significant slowdown in growth and inflation. Um, there's a debate of whether we're going to be entering a recession in the next three to six months. I don't have a strong view on that. I think we may enter a technical recession or we may be able to skirt it. But um, what's certain is that growth has slowed and probably will slow for the next one to two quarters. Um, and I think there's a, there's a good chance that the market right now is um, that equities right now are looking forward in the next three to six months and already predicting that that slowdown and that inflection will happen. Um, and so I think there, there is a, a strong probability that the, the market is kind of trying to find a bottom and, and is back to an uptrend. And I'm willing to be wrong and see how the data forms and, and, and what happens. Um, and I think, you know, right now where um, the, the, uh, on an on a economic level, what I think is really interesting is this inflation, inflation debate. Um, I think the one thing that um, everyone um, everyone knows and it's pretty clear is that inflation is coming down from a very high level. Uh, but I think the components of inflation are really interesting to unpack and that the labor costs look like they're going to be sticky for a long time because we've just had so many people exit the workforce. Uh, we've had immigration uh, that's declined very significantly over the past several years. Um, we've had barriers to importing knowledge workers uh, for various reasons. Um, and and uh, even in kind of the past six months where employment, the employment market has cooled, companies are still finding it very difficult to fill jobs with skilled laborers. So I think this um, question of is inflation uh, sticky because of this labor shortage. I think that's a really interesting dynamic and a very unique dynamic that we haven't had before and that goes against this this uh, regular cycle uh, from before. So I think that's that's worth uh, that's worth noting. Um, and then on the um, on the uh, investment side, what I've been really interested in is is this kind of energy um, uh, energy dynamic with, with uh, companies cutting uh, capital expenditure and exploration. Uh, over the past several years and really getting supply and demand in line um, and the fact that we are still going to rely on oil and natural gas for the foreseeable future. Uh, I think those companies at the valuation that they're at, which is uh, single digits PE, I think is really, really attractive. 
Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm Bosch Tech. I'm, I'm uh, the founder of a technology company. And I think we're uh, at a really interesting point um, with, with just technology uh, productivity increasing uh, and technology being able to uh, really uh, eat the margins of other industries. And I'll stop there because I think I said a lot. No, that's a lot to unpack. And I think it was all really good, uh, really good insight. I think that the biggest piece to that is just maintaining uh, an optimistic view with uh, with really anything. And so it's hard to it's hard to stay optimistic when the headline grab is recession or stagflation or whatever. And and just taking a broader view that's that says that over long periods of time, uh, you know, thousands of years that we've con- continued on a dro- growth trajectory, and specifically in the last 100 years, as uh, really as capitalism has has grown worldwide and as uh, competitive marketplaces have grown worldwide, that GDP growth has continued to accelerate. And I think that um, regardless of what happens with central bank policy. Uh, that that trend will persist, especially like if you look at emerging markets. And I'd like to get your thoughts on this. As demographics really change, that you know you have markets like the U.S. that's really driven global growth for the last seventy-five years, and and has somewhat matured as a marketplace. Uh, what do you? What's your view on that sort of next wave of growth coming from frontier and emerging markets, and continued with this uh, human? Uh, productivity and growth trajectory and 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 richness of uh, just humankind and how that bleeds to markets. Yeah, absolutely. So I think emerging markets have a place in the portfolio and definitely deserve an allocation. Um, in, in the in the long term for an economy, the you know the two drivers of growth are population growth and productivity growth. That's going to explain that explains economic growth. Um, and emerging markets have. The uh, potential to to really outpace the U.S. on both. Um, you you sort of have a uh, one issue in emerging markets with corporate governance and, and how uh, capital is is allocated and how shareholders are treated. Um, a lot of times, companies are owned by insiders, and, and um, it depends what kind of shares you own. So, I think it does matter to to pick companies or at least pick countries where corporate governance is a little bit stronger. Um, but in terms of Kind of having a, a macro, the macro opportunity for growth is is much more uh, there's much more opportunity in emerging markets than uh, than there are uh, in developed markets. Um, on the just on the flip side, in terms of the U.S., um, the the U.S. population obviously is demographics much more mature, uh, much less scope for for growth. Uh, productivity is pretty steady. It's not like we're coming from a um, uh, agrarian society to industrializing what, what's happened in China for the past 30 years. Um, however, the companies in the U.S. are um, about 40% international. They do invest and take advantage of emerging markets growth. Um, so just because somebody owns the S&P 500 or uh, U.S. companies doesn't mean that they don't benefit from some of that outside growth. And I think that's one point that's missed when people sort of have this debate of U.S. versus emerging markets is you are still getting that exposure uh, from from uh, high growth areas from U.S. companies because they are pretty dynamic. They do have really good corporate governance and, and are able to take advantage of those opportunities. I want to get your, um, your you mentioned just the, the energy dynamics um, specifically that after 2014, 2015, 
uh, the crash in oil prices and you know, every, a lot of these companies went belly up. The CapEx cycle for uh, exploration and production went uh, went basically to zero to the point where demand caught up with supply and, and then we're in a situation post-COVID in which uh, basically you have this huge demand cycle, but there hasn't been a whole lot of investment in the space. Um, yeah, so this is a quote from Jeff Curry, who's the, uh, I think he's the chief economist at Goldman Sachs, but he said, uh, this was, um, in, at the end of 2021, a quote that he said at the end of last year, overall fossil fuels represented 81% of energy consumption. 10 years ago, they were 82%. Since then, 3.8 trillion of investment in renewables moved fossil fuels from consumption from 82% to 81% of overall energy consumption. Um, so the idea here is that there's this massive energy transition in place and investment to go green, yet there's just as much reliance on fossil fuels now as there was a decade ago. Uh, for somebody that's looking at that sort of sector of markets and saying, you know, I don't, you know, we're going to move away from fossil fuels eventually. And I don't know if I want to buy a Chevron or an Exxon or, maybe a pure play energy company. Um, what are your thoughts on this just move away from oil and gas and towards renewable en- energy? And are you buying that sort of uh, that sort of move in the marketplace? Yeah, look, I think um, I think long term, it's great. That move is, is terrific for, for society. Uh, if we can get to a point where everything's green and everything is solar and, um, you know, Elon uh, helps us get to Mars with with uh, solar rockets. Um, I think that's great. I think I think um, in a um, you know in this fictitious world, that's that's definitely a place where we want to be. It sounds um, good. It sounds great, uh, but it's not where we are, nor where we will be in the foreseeable future, um, because uh, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that um, uh, <laughs> physics, capitalism, cost, um, just incentives. Um, I think I think it's great that there's a, um, a social movement that's pushing companies to go in that way, and that, and that um, you know people are more conscious of it. I think that's terrific, and I hope that'll continue. Um, the reality of, of, of kind of the statistics that uh, you just mentioned, Doug, of, of how quickly it's happening, I think is 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 going to be the reality for the next you know 50 years of us moving very slowly and finding technologies now doesn't mean that we can't have breakthrough technologies and, and, and batteries and how we convert and, and the cost of energy. Um, and the biggest blocker, I think, of, of it all is that just so many economies just haven't bought in uh, or, or just don't have um, any sort of incentive, economic incentive to buy into this stuff that are maybe emerging markets economies where they're literally thinking yeah, this, about... It's, just, a, it's a rich you know, country problem. It, it's a rich country yeah. problem, right? So it's not it's not like uh, China and, and India and Brazil are all um, pushing this. This is kind of like a, a U.S. and an EU pushed um, theme, which is again, that's I, I think socially, I think that's great. But just the reality is, it's not uh, the, the the biggest kind of uh, consumers and, and the growth of, of energy consumption is still coming from emerging markets. Um, and until these technologies are, are much cheaper and the installation makes sense, it's just not going to it's not going to displace energy. So um, that's you know that's that's kind of like one of the reasons where I think it's a really attractive place to to invest and put money for for the foreseeable future. 
Um, and, and the valuations are, are very supportive and they're still getting, you know, single digit PEs in a lot of these stocks. Now they're you know, arguably coming from a very high oil price. So it's, you know, profits may fall, but you still have that cushion. Um, and I think you still have the, um, you, you still have positioning on your side. The, the sector was really out of favor when oil went negative during COVID. Uh, and it's obviously bounced back and had a nice run over the past uh, year or two, but in terms of where energy is in, in, um, in the S&P 500, its market weight, it's still significantly below where it was five, 10 years ago. Um, I think now it's at about three or 4%. It used to be at about 10%. Um, and so I think there's still scope for, for um, outperformance there in that sector. Right. Something that people don't take into account is that 60 to 70% of the, pop- of the global population lives in developing markets. And the power grids in those particular places are not really that strong, generally speaking. Latin America, for example, there's power outages in certain places, depending upon the country. In order to have an electrification of your automobile, you have to plug it in. And so it's really not practical at this point in time or for the foreseeable future. The other thing is oil in terms of just cars itself. um, Oil cars account for like 40% of oil usage presently, but there's still a tremendous amount of other usages of oil like jet fuel you can't propel a plane on electric electric battery just because it doesn't have doesn't really function or it doesn't function for that that long of time same thing with a lot of boats etc so there's a lot of uh, hurdles that need to be overcome before there's true transition over to towards like a green sort of future and it i agree with you from a, from a uh, for for the foreseeable future it looks like oil is a, is a uh, a good place to be allocating from a macro standpoint, and and you're right. It's if the, there's these single digit sort of valuations that if you look at the the broad markets, there you're looking at in the terms of the U.S. It's like 16 or 17 times earnings. D- domestically on oil and gas, you're in the single digits, and then even more so if you look at emerging markets, uh, oil companies are they're trading even cheaper than the the uh, developed. Or domestic companies. Yeah, I think the so I think pretty- I think the historically the problem has been that the, you can't forecast the price of oil, and so you get burned when you go from eighty bucks a barrel to fifty bucks a barrel, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, a, a strong company that can't really control its profitability because the price of oil has changed uh, becomes a, sort of a dog investment. So you got to be able to hold on to these things through a full cycle to, to appre- appreciate the value in them, but. Anybody that was investing from 2010 to 2020 and owned, you know, major oil stocks is like it's like I don't, I'm not going back. Dead money, there. <laughs> right? Right. Um, right. The the other thing is tech, and I think you mentioned tech as your bullish tech, and I, I think we are as well. Um, and it's been basically straight up up until 2022 it was straight up, and any you throw your, throw the dart at the board and and pick a technology company, you're probably going to make money. Um, and you know, one of the things that people didn't realize and, uh, you know, present company included on that is that technology goes through cycles is just like, just like any other industry. And so, and they're, and they're very long cycles. And so you had the, the internet and dot com age uh, that lasted a long time and then followed by the, the mobile age that lasted a long time. And now the, the second, you know, what's the, what's next, whether it's blockchain or something, you know, that's going to be the the new wave of technology and or you know, internet 3.0 or whatever you want to call it um you know one thing that's been 
a lot in the media a lot related to, to from the investment pers- perspective on technology has been interest rates. Um, do you have thoughts on uh, just just in general from a somebody that's going to be investing in technology how interest rates play in valuation and or is that sort of an overblown assumption that higher rates at least higher central bank rates leads to lower valuation for a lot of these long duration cash flow companies? I, I think the evidence is just overwhelming that um, interest rates play a role in valuation. Um, and that's because um, interest rates are a yield on government bonds. It's the coupon divided by the price, which is the yield. Um, and valuation is the exact same thing. It's, it's earnings divided by price, which is the earnings yield. And if you do the reciprocal of the earnings yield, it's the PE. Um, so uh, it's, it's a little odd that uh, bond investors talk about yield and equity investors talk about multiples. Um, they, you know, I think it would be like, like when I realized this in, in you know, my first year and, and, and um, working on Wall Street, when like, oh, a multiple is really a yield, but the, you know, the reciprocal, I was like, kind of blown away and, and like had never put that together. Um, but because government bonds are kind of the, the risk-free, the de facto investment, um, if, if government bonds offer a higher yield, then, then equities should be offering a higher yield as well or a lower multiple set another way. So I think, I, I think those two, um, I think intuitively that makes sense when you sort of think about it that way. Um, and I think the, the evidence when you look historically in terms of the, the multiple of the S&P 500 and, and where, um, where bond yields have been or, uh, that relationship is typically called the Fed model because supposedly that's what Alan Greenspan used to think about evaluation. Um, that there's a, there's a clear relationship there when treasury yields were at, um, 18% or 20% in 1980, 1981. Um, the, the multiple on the S&P was, was around like nine times or 10 times. Um, and people didn't think that was a low multiple. People thought like, oh, equities are expensive because, I'm getting a 10% earnings yield in, in equities, but I'm getting a 20% earnings yield in, uh, in treasury yields. And so, uh, those two things are definitely related. And, um, then you get into the kind of a little bit more nuanced of if, if yields are changing, does that impact, uh, low cash flow companies or high cash flow companies, or as you said, uh, low, uh, high duration or short duration or long duration. So tech companies considered long duration because their cash flows are pushed out later on. Um, and that's, you know, that the market tends to trade certain things sometimes and ignore it other times. And over the past uh, two years, that's certainly been the case and has been one of the reasons that tech stocks have, have sold off over the past 18 months is because treasury yield spike. Um, that tends to have a, a bigger impact on long duration assets. And tech is one of the longest duration equity assets out there. Yeah. And also, there's just a, there was a culture of uh, of growth without profitability for a long time, and so you were seeing that. We've talked about this a lot on these podcasts. That you were seeing these TikTok videos of these like twenty something year olds that are you know showing your you their day job at Google or whatever, and they're just like grabbing coffee, grabbing a snack. It's like, do you actually have? Do you actually getting any work done? Uh, at the office and, the, and it, it just seemed like they're not. I mean, it's like you're on this sprawling campus in Menlo Park and you're, 
you've like got a, a massage booked and you've got a snack session and things like that. And then you go out and get drinks with your colleagues at like 4 PM. And so there's this whole, uh, culture of just like recruiting top talent, but maybe not having anything for them to do. So just maintaining high expenses without, um, without really focusing on bottom line. And then also just making sure that you're growing top line as quickly as possible uh, and spending a lot of money on marketing. And I think the, the market has changed a lot on, on that sort of perspective, that culture of just growth versus efficiency. That element has definitely played a role. Um, at, at Coifin, we have um, about um, just under 20 engineers, software engineers, um, and we're, we, we're building this product and I just feel like our engineers are super overworked and we're just doing so many things and releasing new features. And when I look at a company like Lyft or Twitter or, uh, or like, let's say Lyft that has thousands of engineers and they're, they're like a, they're a taxi, right? So like, I don't know what people are doing at these tech companies that have thousands of people. And, you, you know, I think, I think one um, aspect to it is that as tech companies have more resources, you're sort of incentivizing managers to just hire more people with that cash flow. And, and maybe that was kind of a, uh, one of the reasons to happen. Um, the other thing is, I think a lot of these CEOs, um, if they just showed how much profit they're making, like let's say Google was making just an insane amount of money, I think the regulators would just be much more over it. And so I think they have to have their kind of like, they're like, hey, we need to have a 15% profit margin if we're at 50%. People are going to say, like, what, like, what is this going on here? Um, and so I think now that kind of like revenue declined a little and they've had to kind of push back on that. But it's it's something that I um, think about and, and talk about with uh, our internal uh, senior folks about all the time. It's just like, what, what are like, right. what are all totally these people right. doing? Right. Spotify did layoffs recently and they had like. 10,000 employees it was in the, it was in an article they cut off they cut like 800 employees and they had 10,000 employees after the cuts and I was thinking about myself the same exact thing like what do 10,000 people at Spotify do it's just it seems insane yeah like Spotify is a great product no knock against it but like what are the features that they shipped over the past 12 months that need 10,000 people doing like like the button looks different sure or like right there's podcasts now cool um but the um, I, I, there's, there's just you know the, the Twitter example is, is really interesting with uh, you know Elon whatever your view of him coming in and basically you know firing eighty um, percent of, of the people and look there's glitches in Twitter and, and there's stuff that don't work now as well as they used to but the company's still running and the product's running and they've actually been able to ship a bunch of new features. Um, and so for, for, for better or worse, I think he showed that there's just so many people doing nothing. Um, and so it'll be, it'll be, I think, I think in tech, uh, one of the reasons I'm bullish on the stocks is I think the, the managements are going to be a little bit more uh, focused on, on making sure that they're not getting too bloated in terms of their employee count. Yeah. And then, I mean, you think of it, it's a, it's difficult to think about because there's probably way, I mean, I don't even know how many multiples of people that are working in tech now that probably uh, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be employed because of the bloat, but then it limits, it limits innovation by having, having people having being overstaffed. Um, you have all these people that are super talented that have a cush job at, at meta or Google or whatever, that why would they ever want to leave? Uh, they're getting 
a lot of their compensation is extremely high. They're getting a lot of stock incentives and things like that. And so you're sort of limiting the uh, innovative capacity of, of very intelligent people by just allowing these tech companies just hiring as many of them as they possibly can and making it so, so the incentives that they can't leave. And so maybe this this whole layoff spurs the next wave of growth in technology by having all of these people that are intelligent coming together and saying, well, we've got to create a new product instead of um, being employed by one of these, these mega firms. I, I, I think that's such a great point in terms of um, all the middle managers. And, and I think Facebook has like five layers of management that Facebook is just hoovering up by paying people half a million dollars in salary. Um, just takes away from companies like Coifin and all the other startups that are trying to hire talent and, and build innovative products. Um, so I think to the extent that that doesn't happen anymore, that's really bullish for innovation. For yeah. sure. I, I also think that all of the unnecessary bloat in meetings and stuff caused by all these middle managers that don't really do anything but call meetings or hold meetings all day, if, you, if they can actually get more efficient internally by removing some of that bloat, I think it allows some of the talented people to do more actual work. And that should also increase efficiency and productivity and um, the bottom line as well, too. So switching to Coif and what was the, I mean, it's hard to go from, uh, I guess, other than Jeff Bezos going from the hedge fund world to the technology world. What was the motivating factor to just say, look, I'm I'm done with uh, this lifestyle and I'm going to launch my own company? Yeah. Um, you know, I wish I, I, I could say that I was, um, you know, in retrospect, I'm so glad I did it, but it was something I was wrestling with in terms of that decision of starting something new and really foregoing the opportunity on Wall Street, which I enjoyed. I love markets. I love investing in markets. Um, I love kind of like what I was doing, which is taking a bunch of data and, and analyzing it and coming up with interesting trade ideas. That was pretty much my job. Um, but when I, um, when I started, before I started Coifin, I, I, uh, was just looking at the tools out there, um, that investors were using. And I thought one, um, it was so strange that in finance, you have these, um, uh, enterprise tools like Bloomberg and FactSet, and you have these retail tools like Yahoo Finance or the brokers, and there's nothing in the middle. There's nothing that's kind of professional grade and, and available to, to other, uh, to individual investors or to. Uh, retail investors. And that was something that was a big trend uh, uh, called kind of prosumer, focus on the prosumer and other verticals, uh, which is creating a enterprise level product or uh, product made for professionals and making it available to, to individuals. Um, so that was, um, you know, that was a theme that I thought was interesting and that could be applied to finance, which wasn't applied yet. Um, and so at Coifin, we're creating pretty advanced tools and making it available to anyone who wants to use them. You don't have to pay $30,000 a year to, to, to use these tools. And you could sign up for the free version of Coifin and, and see what it feels like and, and the data we have on there and, and decide to upgrade if you want to. Um, and then the second thing is the, 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 the tools out there made for professionals like Bloomberg and Reuters and FactSet were all created 30 years ago. They all feel and look like they were created 30 years ago and really they're data tools. They're not analytical tools. And where I thought the opportunity for innovation was, was really creating a uh, graphing interface, dashboarding, snapshots, taking the data and, and making it 
um, a little bit uh, easier to, to analyze, uh, easier to, to play around with, easier to track. Um, and so really R2 is, is being fed by a bunch of professional-grade data sources, but the real magic and, and the real value add is really the graphing and, and the snapshots and the dashboards that we offer investors to really turn that data into information and understand what's happening with the data. Um, and I thought that was a dimension that hadn't been innovated on, um, and that was something that I thought Coifin could do well. Um, and so today we have um, we have about 400,000 registered users. We have students. We have hedge fund managers. We have everyone in between, including financial advisors, using our platform. So we've really, I think, struck a nerve and, and proved out that thesis of, of more people needing these kind of modern, intuitive, professional-grade tools. Is the plan – so, you know – we mentioned Bloomberg earlier. You mentioned FactSet, and there's a, there's a couple other providers, but there really hasn't been any innovation at the at the premier level of uh, this industry. It's been dominated by two or three players, and probably more specifically by Bloomberg for decades. Um, what what is why hasn't there been any innovation there? Because the the Bloomberg terminal itself and that sort of analytical tool seems so antiquated when you use it. Uh, these are the amount of funding that the, the and expenses for research that that funds uh, put forth, it would Im- imagine there would attract a lot of capital and competition to that particular area. Why is why is there such a barrier to entry at that that high level of uh, you know like your your former uh, employers? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of um, uh, parts to that answer. So. In terms of the incumbents, why why don't they just innovate and create new modern products? Um, I think that's kind of the innovator's dilemma of, of these companies. They figure out how to make money. They have business leaders that are then tied to that cash flow and to go and invest and, and basically disrupt themselves or, or try and introduce new products that that um, take away from that cash flow from that business. That, that's just something that, that big companies are really bad at. Um, and so they, they tend to just do the same thing and, and add to the same thing that they're doing. Um, and then the other thing is just technology, the, the, the way that we're building Coifin with, with JavaScript being web-based is totally different than, than the underlying fabric that Bloomberg and, and Faxet are built on, which are just really old um, uh, coding frameworks of uh, Fortran and, and Java. And it's very hard to take those frameworks and then just apply them to the web and, and create web, web-based tools that are that are light and, and easy to use. Um, and then the second aspect of it is really data availability. Um, 10 or 20 years ago, I wouldn't be able to start Coifin because just the data wasn't available. Um, and the reason that data has become available in the past several years is um, because information and data has been digitalized easier. So now there's SEC filings that are available in electronics form and they're being sold by a lot of different vendors. 10 years ago, there were only two firms that had financial data because they had 10,000 people in India inputting the numbers. Today, that stuff is just much more digital, much more readily available. And so there's more companies selling it. Um, And that's really forced companies like Reuters, like Capital IQ, where we buy our data to start selling their data because there's just so much more competition. Um, and so I'd say the, uh, the, the barrier to entry of, of getting the data has become easier. And, uh, even Bloomberg started licensing their own their data last year. Um, and so that's, that's really helped Coifin and, and why we wouldn't be able to start Coifin 10 years ago, and it's easier to do that. So what, is, what does Coifin look like 
know, three or five years from now, what's the, what's your objective with the company? Yeah. So, um, the way we think about Coifin is it's this versatile Swiss army knife for financial data analytics. Um, and what that means is we have all available financial data on the platform and you get to choose what you want to consume, what you want to analyze. For example, if you're a financial advisor, you may want to just analyze mutual funds and ETFs and have workflows related to that. And we would provide those tools like model portfolios or comparison analysis. Um, if you're a equity investor, you may want to consume just equity data. And that's uh, kind of your primary focus. And then we would have tools associated with that, like financial analysis and valuation uh, and portfolio analytics. So it's really kind of um, building these um, these underlying widgets that can be customized and can be brought together to really accomplish the workflow. Um, and I'd say the, the, the real power of our tool is the customization, is the fact that you have hedge fund managers and students using the tool in different ways. Um, and so we want to offer that customization to, to our users and basically offer all that data in one place so that they can customize the workflow to what they're trying to achieve. Well, great. Well, Rob, we're, uh, we're coming up on time here, but um, wanted to thank you for joining us today and would love to discuss uh, Coifin later. And also um, would love to have you back on the podcast later to give you some more macro perspective, because I think it's, it's one of these periods in time in which, uh, you know, when you, when you have a 2021 or maybe a 2019, everything, nobody really is paying close attention to markets because everybody's making money every single day and it's hard to, hard to lose. But uh, the, the attention paid to specifically what's going on in central bank policy and geopolitics on a daily basis now has become front and center. And it's just good to have people with that sort of background be able to explain, um, you know, how, how, you know, the hedge fund strategists are thinking about markets like today. So anyway, thank you so much for joining. And for those that are listening, please like and share and give us a five-star review and uh, maybe leave a comment. But uh, we, we thank you and uh, we'll get back to you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.